0: Give up. I never give up. I never
1: give up. Turn around. Hi guys. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast. With me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day. And it is a day where we talk about challenges, um, big challenges. And I need your your call at the end of it to, to help me make a decision. What is a bigger challenge? Um to deal with your own inner demons, or to cycle through Canada, because, you know, you can, um, I mean, you know, all the way through Canada, um, because my guest did exactly these two things. And when I read that about him, I thought, I need to talk to this guy. So Matthew Dixon, um, I'm so happy that I've got you on my show. Welcome.
0: Thanks for having me. Much appreciated.
1: Wow. Wow. Um, When did you ever get the idea to cycle through Canada? Last time I looked, Canada is a pretty big, uh, big place. Um, How did that come about?
0: Yeah, it's 7,000 kilometers long. (laughs) And so I did the trip when I was 20. I signed up for it when I was 19. And that came out of nowhere. Uh, It may have been building through my youth. I know as a teen, I lived... uh, in a small town on on the coast of eastern Canada. And I would look out at some, you know, a deserted deserted island right in front of the town for years. And none of my friends and I really went to visit it a whole lot. And it just it was just right in front of me the whole time. And I think just uh, the call of the wilderness was in me. Hmm. But I still enjoyed my youth, did lots of stuff. But I was always I was always thinking, hmm, what more could I do? What what more could I see? So I was taking civil engineering at university and I wasn't particularly liking it, but I didn't really know what else to do. I was was a smart kid, but I was drifting, sort of purpose wise, passion wise. Mm. And this uh, newspaper article came in front of me. Uh, I pulled it out of my drawer. My mom had clipped it out uh, of the newspaper a year earlier and I just tucked it away in my drawer with lots of other clippings they'd always been giving me. Uh, But this time when I looked at it again, I don't know what it is about it, you see these articles all the time, somebody's climbing, climbing a mountain or yeah. rowing across an ocean or doing all yeah. sorts of things. And within minutes of reading the article this time, I found myself on the phone, uh, phoning the phone number at the end of it to ask for more information. And they sent me some, got it in the mail a week or two later, and I put a deposit down of $100 to secure a spot on the trip in November uh 91 and then in 92 that summer in July and August I did the trip it was uh yeah it's uh that's one thing i try to tell people is for me having done that there was always there was always a way out uh if i i mean just a simple a simple phone call that's all you have to do to ask, to ask for more information so many things i have found to start with a simple phone call or a message or something to somebody wow. just uh, the initiation of something and Anyway, I there were so many ways to back out. I mean, I, when I flew to Vancouver, I didn't mean I had to 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 actually do the trip. I'd gotten out there, I'd done the training. Didn't mean I had to do it halfway across Canada. I didn't have to finish it. I could go home at any time I wanted. Yeah. But inside, I wanted to do the trip, and I and I finished it. And yeah, it's that's uh, one thing I try to tell people is for that trip. I, I don't know about other things in life, but for that trip, that was a lot easier. Lot easier than I thought. It was, it it had its challenges for sure, but Uh, I, it was daunting to do beforehand. I was like, Matthew, what are you signing yourself up for? Like you, you, you're not a cyclist. You did the recommended training, but what are you doing? Canada uh, is huge. And yeah, it's, but I I try to tell people it's so much easier than you think. Once you're out there doing the trip, uh, you're like, wow, this is easy.
1: uh... (laughs) yeah right uh about that (laughs) but but i think there you are showing the power of taking the first step the power of taking action of of not just thinking but actually just going out there Uh, it does not matter what you look at um, whatever kind of area in your life you want to improve uh, the best thing to do is just take one and start. It doesn't matter that you know exactly what your training plan will be. It doesn't matter exactly that you know how you will improve your finances, but you start right now, five minutes, with something that's probably heading in the right direction. And if you do that every day, then very soon there is no holding you back because you made it a an habit. And here you are, you made it a habit of achieving something quite extraordinary may i say i mean that is beautiful once you've got that under your belt that is that is pretty cool but then your life had a bit of another idea um you didn't think oh yeah cool let's do europe then um how did your life life take a detour
0: well, I, I was thinking that I loved the lifestyle of biking uh, and I wanted to go and bike through Europe and bike across Australia and huh. who knows, I, I didn't have any specific plans for my life. I just had some dreams of, I knew I wanted a good life like everybody does, but uh, throughout university, I noticed some symptoms uh, creep, creeping up in me and I didn't know what they were at the time. I didn't know what mental illness was. We learned a little bit about mental health in high school health class but we, we hadn't learned about depression or anxiety or antipsychotics. Mm. And so throughout university, I was experiencing these symptoms, but I could still do stuff like bike across Canada or, mm. you know, get mostly A's in engineering, you know, live mm. on my own, live independently. I was on the university rowing team, cool. but when the disease hit, it hit hard. I was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 22 in the last term of my last year of university. And, uh, I went from muddling through life a little bit to flat on my back, incapacitated, not knowing whether I was going to live or die from one moment to the next. It was terrifying, that feeling. I remember thinking, if this pain lasted for only two weeks or even two months, I, I could deal with that. I, I I would say, you know, I could last that long. But when they started talking about years of my life, you start to question, is the, is it worth it? And what I didn't know then was that your brain can really play tricks on you. And there's a lot of unknown. The unknown is terrifying. And there was so little information. I've read tons of books now in the self-help section, personal development section. I've read books by Navy SEALs, Olympic athletes, top CEOs. They're all trying to get a better mindset, get more confidence. Mm-hmm. There are so many things I know now that I had no clue about. At 22 and there's a lot of things that your mind does whether you've got mental illness or not in my experience there were a lot of thought patterns that tick along just fine with schizophrenia you have disorganized thinking that's one of the symptoms it's hard to think clearly Um, but uh, there are some other thought patterns that tick along just fine and other people say that two parts of the brain are just working just fine it feels like you're uh, it's this chaos. You feel like you're just shouting into a tornado and barely being able to be heard above it. Oh. Just a lot of chaos in your head, noise. It feels like you're being bombarded by stimuli, visual and audio. Uh, I, I never hallucinated. I was in the 25% of people with schizophrenia that don't hallucinate. Oh, right. But it's still very, there were some psychosis parts of it that are a little bit trippy for lack of a more professional word. Mm. Uh, things like at my worst, if I, I felt if I was walking, if I, if I was walking, I felt like if I turned around and just started walking in the opposite direction where I came from, that I would go back in time. I knew I, knew I wouldn't, it just felt that way. A lot of people with schizophrenia say it feels like the TV is talking to them. Mm. And I had that feeling too, I knew it wasn't. I knew it wasn't. it just had that it, but so uh, delusions, paranoid delusions are common mm. with schizophrenia. I don't know what the percentage rate is. I never mm. really had those. I didn't think the you know, the CIA or the FBI was spying on me through my TV or phone oh. or something. I never thought that. Mm. But, uh, for, but for example, like the TV feeling like the TV is the person on the screen is actually there in the room with you. Hmm. And I might argue, well, looking back and I just had this idea the other day, I thought, well, isn't that what everybody says about TV? It's like, wow, a a human being right in the room there with you. Is it just that normal experience just heightened a lot that they feel like they're in the room even more so? Or, for example, like a lot of people, they don't want to go outside. There's just too much going on. And uh, I know for me at home it's quiet you know it can be quiet there's not a lot going on uh everything's not things aren't moving around in your house mm. you know the couch stays where it is and everything mm. but when you go outside there's lots of sights and sounds things mm. moving sounds coming from different directions there's a lot more stimuli mm. is it just that same experience again just heightened i don't know but it mm. was uh it was it was very scary to to go outside it was uh mm. or just to be alive really it was it was really painful to exist the uh it really felt like uh, if anybody's scared of the dark and they go walking around town at night or in, or in the middle of the forest in the middle of the night that's totally different from the middle of the day that can be scary
1: mm.
0: and uh, or a nightmare you wake up from mm. your sleep in the middle of the night and you bolt out of bed with, from a nightmare Hmm. And it's it's a sort of creepy, scary feeling that you have, even on a bright, sunshiny, beautiful day in your peaceful home or backyard. It's uh, just a lot of fear.
1: Interesting. Okay. When you say you you had the diagnosis made, what were the symptoms that actually drove you to seek help?
0: So they were fairly mild. Uh, I could still do stuff. But... When it finally came time, when the disease really hit, the first thing was I was sitting in my apartment and I had the, just sitting there thinking. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if I killed myself right now. And, uh, and my next thought was, I'd be okay with that. And my next oh. thought was, Matthew, that's not good.
1: <laughs> okay. You should
0: get that. Uh, you should do something about that. That scared me. So I did. I phoned a friend. He made me promise him to go up to the university health clinic, which I did. And they took me into the city hospital and psychiatric ward. And that was my introduction into the mental health system. So it was, uh, and then after that, the symptoms just really crept and hard. uh, Like, like the symptoms I just mentioned, those are the Mm. ones that Mm. came in after the fact. Uh, They were fairly mild before then.
1: How was your first Uh, Contact, the first confrontation. Confrontation is already something negative. Therefore, I chose the word contact with the mental health system. Were you feeling supported, or was that a scary thing?
0: I I voluntarily went. I I wanted to get help. Yeah. And it's uh, the people. You know, they were doing the best they could. This was 1994, so the mental health system. Uh, wasn't as good as it is now and it still needs a lot more work Mm. but i i i don't know i felt supported by family and friends i felt supported by the mental health system you know some people were better than others Mm. i it wasn't scary per se it was just my disease that was scary
1: Mm. it was brilliant uh, brilliant so at least there was not a uh, a very negative start of a journey um because often enough there's insult to injury um when you look at people who go through trauma um the classic example is that a woman finally brings up the courage to speak out about a rape or about an abuse that she is suffering from only then not to be listened uh, to or uh, being belittled or or other in other ways feels again mistreated so more trauma has come on that and unfortunately i've also heard that uh, in the mental health system so it's, i'm i'm really pleased that this is not the case um, did did the people you worked with initially, did they, were they able to help you? What was the treatment like for you?
0: So with, uh, with mental illness, the, well, psychiatry, the brain, psychiatry is the only profession where they don't actually look at the organ that they're treating.
1: Some people do <laughs> Well, then then we couldn't. Then in the 1990s when with CT scans, we're just about there. You look if there's maybe a tumor there or a trauma that is causing any kind of psychotic symptoms. That's as far as you could look at that time. Nowadays, there are more functional MRIs and things like that that we're nowadays learning. So the black box becomes now a dark gray box up there. But 1994, oh man, <laughs> no chance there.
0: Yeah, I still don't know how many people today when they go to see a psychiatrist, if they actually scan their brains, but they can do it. Dr. Daniel Amen in the States, he's a leading brain scientist. He has a SPECT scan that Mm. measures blood flow and activity in the brain, and he can fairly accurately diagnose someone just by looking at their brain. For me in the hospital, they asked me questions, they looked at my body language and behavior, Mm. and came up with schizophrenia they thought it might be schizoaffective disorder which is a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar at first but that was quickly moved to schizophrenia mm-hmm. i had depression and anxiety as well they uh, i got on they tried me on six or seven of the 1960s antipsychotics at the time <laughs> none of them worked and uh, they tried me on one that had just come out that year and it worked it worked slowly but it did work and okay. i've stayed on it i'm still on it today 20 yeah. some years later so
1: beautiful what being a doctor which which drugs are you on or oh, which drug are you on uh No. Nice. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's still a very commonly used drug here in in new zealand okay no that's beautiful um and you started getting better did you how long were you uh voluntarily admitted
0: so I was in the psych ward in and out of there maybe six times. I forget in 1994, right. Right. I went to get help each time. I, I wanted to be in there cause I was scared that I might take my life. I wanted to be locked up so that I wouldn't hurt myself. Okay. And they have rooms for that. They've got suicide watch rooms. So I was nice. in there when you're in the suicide watch room, I think there's some signing of papers that says, uh, some, you're sort of someone else can make decisions for you yeah. at that yeah. time. But, for me, I wanted to be in there in the first place. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But after that, I got into a group home and was in there for three years. Mm-hmm. And after that, I've been living on my own since nineteen
1: ninety seven. So. Beautiful. How was your relationship with your mom and dad?
0: Good. It's uh, everyone. Everyone is different. Everyone, You've got a r- different relationship with everybody. Everybody handles things differently. But overall, uh, friends and family. My biggest thing was I didn't want anybody giving me a hard time, like mm. uh, verbal abuse, that sort of thing. And I was pretty darn lucky for a long time. Later in my recovery, I had some people giving me a hard time, but I was able to handle it at the time. Okay, so. Brilliant. It's uh yeah, really, other than my disease, I don't have too many complaints about my life.
1: That's beautiful. <laughs> You're almost I- well- it must have been so scary for your mom and dad. Um, here you were, that, that student they were proud of, uh, nailing it at university, achieving this beautiful cross-country cycling. They would have had smiles on their faces and think, "Yeah, our oh, young man, look at him. We did that," <laughs> <laughs> you know, as parents do. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then suddenly, oh my God, things things go. From bad to worse at least for for them. Um, And it is it is so hard because I can see that how powerless it makes any relative feel when it comes to mental health problems of a loved one. How did they cope with that?
0: I'm not sure they I think they did the best they could. It was, uh, I come from a pretty stable family. So it's, uh, I I think we all did the best we could. Mm. It's, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I will say though, I read in a book once about parenting. I don't have kids of my own, but I Mm. read that uh, some parents might feel really bad about um, uh, if their child's not doing very well for whatever Mm. reason. And the person said, You know, I tell this person said, I tell parents, don't worry too much about how your kid turns out because he said he's seen lots of kids. Good kids uh, come from bad families, and bad mm. kids come from good families. It's uh, mm. ultimately, we all have a lot of uh, control over what we do with our own lives. So,
1: touche, very good. Yeah. And I 100% subscribe to that. Um, I'm living proof. And most of my guests that I bring on here are living proof of exactly that concept. The past does not equal the future. And we have got choices. We have got, the, the we are privileged to make choices every second in our day. Some of us will lead us more towards a state or towards a, um, um, a, a person who we like to become Others maybe not so much. And it is what it is. Um uh, so no, I love that. I loved it a lot. Wow. So here you are. Uh not your best year. Uh let's put it like that. You were probably not uh finishing, you had not finished your studies. Um so now that you're getting better, how did it continue?
0: So I failed out of my last year of my oh. last term of engineering or my last term of my last year to go into the hospital. I went and got those six courses I failed out of uh, when I was in the group home for three years. I took one course a term. Oh, I nice. got my degree uh, three years later after failing out. And I remember walking home with a big Cheshire cat grin on my face saying, Absolutely. wow, I actually did that. I got my degree. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was. Uh, I was never really too keen on engineering. That was one of the reasons I did my bike trip. I just wasn't interested in it. But I finished mm-hmm. it to just get the degree anyway. I didn't really know what else to do, and I, and I was halfway through it. But I was a lot more happy getting that degree. I think having uh, the last few years in the group home doing those courses than I would have say if I hadn't gotten sick, and gotten the degree. I, I would have said, well, I just did that. But it's uh, <laughs> it's amazing what some. Um, what some challenges can do for you to make you feel happy what
1: you've done. Although you have dared the, the although making, although you have dared the making of potentially uh, another disaster coming, because you know you've spent so much time of actually creating this new you, that engineer. Um, but you said yourself two or three times, well, it's actually not something that really tickles my fancy. So, her. Her.
0: yeah so it was good. i at least got, an, uh, got a degree it always can open up doors you're just having a university degree mm-hmm. and i got a job with the uh, uh in the environment field with the government uh, doing data entry filing a bit of field work and uh, it was nice to working in a field i'm interested in i've always been interested in the environment mm-hmm. and uh but i i was pretty limited in what i could do i So many things I couldn't do, so many jobs I couldn't do. I really, I remember thinking, you know, I I remember thinking I had every right if I wanted to, to just sit at home and not work because I did not feel like going into work. It was uh, really difficult, Hmm. but I wanted to try to increase my chances of survival. And one of the medical health professionals said, if you want to do that, try to find a job, try to find some reason to get up in the morning. Hmm. Hmm. Like, well, if you're telling me to go to work, Okay, here I go. It's, uh, but it, it, it was tough. I, I don't think any day in my 20 years there, I actually wanted to go to work. I didn't want to get out of bed on the weekends. I just, it was, uh, t- that was the one single biggest thing I had to do every single day was simply get out of bed. Oh my gosh, it was difficult. Once I was out, it was a lot easier to keep going. Sure. Uh, that was so difficult. The one single thing. And, uh, I remember thinking if I just had five minutes, 10 minutes, just a break from this pain, yep. uh, it would let me, but, and I never got that for so long. I, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give it one thing. It let me sleep. It let me sleep at night. I could, I could sleep, sleep like a baby and there was no pain at night. And when I woke up in the morning, I remember thinking I could, the pain would start to set in. I'd be in this sort of twilight zone uh, where I'd be feeling not not as much pain from just having been asleep. And as I slowly woke up, I could feel it set in. And my first thought was no, 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 Please, mm. please don't make, please not another day like this. And I, the, the next thought was I, I, I wasn't religious, I, but I just said to anybody or nobody, I don't know what you'd call it, but I, I just found myself saying, please give me the strength to make it through this day. Mm. I said that for the for the early years of my recovery, every single day. Please give me the strength to make it through this day, and I meant alive, in and a lot of the times. So it was uh, it was tough. I, I'd fall asleep at night thinking, Oh wow, the day was so long. I don't know how days and time can drag so unbelievably slowly but they can and I'd go to bed thinking wow I did that I got this whole day now I've got a whole eight maybe nine maybe even 10 hours of sleep if I'm lucky of no pain and I'd fall asleep and literally it would be like counting to five or maybe 10 and I'd wake up again in the morning the nights went so quickly oh my gosh I'd be sitting there thinking what eight or nine hours. I just got like five, 10 seconds. What, what I've got to do the whole day all over again, this whole long, horribly long day. Oh my gosh. I felt so cheated out of that, but you get up and do it. You just keep going. And that's, that's one of the messages I try to tell people is we have so much more inside of us than we think. And I, I was tested that way. Uh, You, when, when there's when you have to do stuff, it's amazing what you actually can do. It's like why people jump into, you know, go into burning buildings to save somebody. It's, uh, you just do it.
1: But one of the key questions that a lot of people who want to develop themselves further, are recommended to ask themselves is why? What is your why? And When you're in that situation, you're battling to go up, uh, to get up in the morning. Um, How the hell do you find the why there? Or I rephrase the question. Was there anything that gave you joy during those hard times?
0: I had hope for the future. I, from my experience, I believe the last thing any of us will ever own is hope. Actually, there's something beyond that, and I call it hope beyond hope. It's there's when when but the last thing you'll feel that you actually own is hope. It feels like you're just clinging to hope just clinging like people say they're at the end of their rope. For me, a rope would have been like a luxury. I had like a string to clinging to the end of my string.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's exactly the key message of Viktor Frankl and, and so many other men who have been in absolutely desperate, desperate situations. Uh, situations that there is really no hope and it's those people who have given up hope were those that perished and those people who continued against all odds Um,
0: yeah i I will say that it's well documented now that people who attempt suicide many of them regret it and they regret it instantly in a lot of the cases there's a TED talk by Kevin Briggs. He's a motorcycle patrolman on the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Uh, His job okay. is to look for jumpers. Yeah. And he said many of them they the survived 1 or 2% of the jumpers survived that fall. Mm. And they asked them afterwards and in another suicide studies too, they say similar things. Mm. What were you thinking the instant after you jumped when there is no return? Mm. And they said uh, Instantly regretted it. They went, their brain chemistry went from, I want to die and that's it. There's no hope to, I want to live. I want to live to see Mm. my family, my friends. I want to see there's so much joy in life. I want to, I want to get into that somehow Mm. as they're falling. That's what they're thinking. Their brain chemistry changed in an instant. And Kevin Kevin Hines, he's a suicide prevention advocate. Mm. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. He survived, and he said he knows to this day that he will never kill himself. He has suicidal thoughts, and he has to deal with them, but he says he will never kill himself by by suicide because mm. he knows he can just keep going. He, he proved mm. it to himself. Uh, one note on Kevin, he says that a line he uses, because he still struggles a fair bit, he says sometimes he needs help, and he says mm. he will go up, his, his tools, I will go up to anybody. He's even approached uh, people, work workers in airports he says it might not be the smartest thing to do but he says and his his line is to anybody i need help now and that's his tool that's what he does he walks up to people and says that i need help now so that's a bit of an aside but it's uh no but it's it's that's, important for no. that's
1: that takes balls that takes that takes commitment And wow, what a strength that does. That is not weakness. That is the strength that only few men can bring up. It's much easier to follow the dark faults than it is actually to stand up and say, I need help. Um, But that is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Wow, bloody hell. Um, So there you were. Managing to hold it together, let's put it like that um there was not really much joy in your life the way you there's talk.
0: a thing called there's a thing called anhedonia. I was never diagnosed with that. I don't know mm. if that's what I had yeah. no doctor ever mentioned that name yeah. it's yeah. the inability to feel pleasure mm. I don't know if I had that or not. I do know that my in the early years it was difficult to find much joy, but there are things that that how do I say this it's for example i i've gone i've I've flown out to vancouver flown flown across Canada a number of times during my recovery, mm. and I love the mountains out west in western canada mm. I love that area out there and I remember thinking here I am out in Vancouver, and <sighs> I'm not happy I'm still depressed or schizophrenic or anxious mm. and and I didn't have as much energy to do things. My friends said I had to push me to go outside or do this or that. I wanted to like lie in bed sometimes or lie mm. on the couch. And I felt bad about that. You know, here I am in Vancouver. I should be doing all sorts of things. And here I am, I just want to lie here. But so there's that sort of aspect. You can't fully enjoy it as much as you'd want. But simply doing those things, uh, going out for a walk every day or most days if you can, simply getting outside the house, even though it may be very painful and very scary, doing it anyway, even though you may think you're outside thinking this hasn't cured anything. I feel the exact same way as I was inside. It didn't lessen the pain in any way, but I'm going to argue it does. You can't feel it, but somewhere inside you, those things count. And it's important to keep doing the things that you want to do that give you that would ordinarily give you joy. To do, to try to do as many of those as you can, anyway, because I think they still count. And you can look back on your life years later, and think, well, you know what? Even though I, I felt horrible, I still went out to Vancouver and did that stuff, or I or I did this, or I did that. I, my life was my recovery wasn't chock full of activities that I did, but I did some things. Lots of times I just lay there, but sometimes I did get up and do some things and I can look back on my life and say, well, good for you, Matthew, you, you did those things. And I, I think they, even though they feel like they don't count at the time, they do. It may take some time to realize that, but I, I think it's very important to get out and do those things if you can.
1: Did you keep a record of those things that you did? I feel, to 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 go along your line of thought, I often feel that at the end of a day, I'm tired as hell. I know I've worked my guts out, but I have nothing to show for it, at least in my brain. My brain wants to tell me I'm a failure. That's my default position up there. And uh, I've I've taken it down to actually writing things down and actually making little little notes to actually say, hey, man, you did that, 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 that. Or you didn't do those things because. But I hold myself accountable. And by doing so, I can take actually some of the the, the these kind of screwed up thoughts, I can take them away, I can take the wind out of their sails. Are you doing something like that?
0: Gratitude was something that was very hard for me to feel throughout uh, the bulk of my disease, even in the last so many years of my recovery, it was difficult for me to feel gratitude, I could a little bit, but I, I, how do I, how do I put this? It's, I did have other times where I felt pretty good dancing Uh, in the last 10, 12 years of my recovery or so. I did more dancing. And when I dance, I feel like a million bucks, even though it wasn't totally 100%, you know, I was still struggling with depression and anxiety and whatnot. It just made me feel so unbelievably good. So it's, I mean, that worked for me. I, I, I've known about gratitude for a million years. I know it's so powerful. It's such an important thing to do, to feel thankful. One tip I might throw out, I've tried it. I, I tried it once and it, um, it worked for me very well. I didn't keep using this trick, but I should have. It's, I guess gratitude just might not be my thing. Other things work for me. But the trick is, they said a lot of people can't feel gratitude. And they say, well, could you write a list of things that you could feel grateful for? You may not actually, but you could. And I tried it once. I'm like, well, I could be grateful for, and I started listing off, food in my stomach, roof over my head, sunshiny day. And they say, what happens is sometimes after you do that for a while, you actually do start to feel grateful. You can trick yourself into doing that. And I felt that worked for me. After a few things on my list, I started feeling more grateful. So. Yeah, I, I never, um, I never really wrote down uh, things a whole lot. Um, I, I found what worked for me, and uh, this is a little bit taboo to talk about. It shouldn't be, but uh, talking to myself in the early part, in the early years of, of my recovery, there was no way I was going to talk myself because I thought, well, that's what someone with schizophrenia does when they're not doing well. I didn't want to do that, but as time went on, I said, I want to. I was lonely living by myself. I, I just want to talk to somebody. And I felt it's so much easier to when you hear yourself saying these things out loud. It, it, it's like, wow, Matthew, that's what's going on in your, in your head. It's so helpful to get them out loud. And during the pandemic, there were articles about this online. A lot of people said I, at home alone, they talked to themselves. Uh, Aisha Tyler, the, uh, the uh, TV host from Whose Line Is It Anyway, the, the TV improv show, uh, she said she does that. Uh, the actor, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he said he talks to himself loudly sometimes. And for me, I've always had an interest in acting. I haven't done much with it, but when I'm by myself and talking, I can be very loud and it's amazing. The, the rants, you can go on, you can get all dramatic. And, and that's one of the things that actors actors try to do is to be in a space where they can be big and loud and, and you know bigger gestures and get more animated. And it's... Uh, it's a wonderful release for me. I, I don't do it when there's people around, of course, because you don't look like you're sane. But
1: <laughs> I think the reality there is you're not just actually uh, speaking things out loud, although that act alone, uh, you spelling things out, your mouth actually finding the words to fit your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts uh, is one thing. The second thing is then that your ears actually hear those words coming out of your mouth. And you then get the chance to actually reevaluate. My wife is very strong in that. And it drives me nuts, because she needs to speak things out. And then she goes through every single aspect of a problem that I want to fix. I've got a solution. I fix it for you. No, 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 no. I need to come from all angles. Ten minutes later, she comes to a conclusion that may or may not be the same as I have. Um, but she needs that process. And it, it is painful for me, but I understand it now so much better. So there's these kind of things happening. But the other thing you're doing is you're changing your state you are changing your state it is you actually have to work quite hard to be depressed you have to sort of slouch a bit forward put your face a bit down breathe more shallow so it's actually quite a lot of activity happening there or you can choose to go all the way around i'm a superhero. So same activity, you know, maybe a touch more tension in your back, but you know, ugh, yeah, look up, maybe smile in a really silly and sick way that I think, really think, don't do that in public, maybe, okay, but, you know, <laughs> but you're changing your state. If you go like that, it's really hard to be depressed, okay, try to be depressed, depressed. Okay, okay, go like that, try to be depressed. It's really, really hard. Tony Robbins is really big in that. Um, And that's exactly what you have done. And that's with the talking and with, with spelling things out and going more emotional out there. That is beautiful. You're actually living life. You are actually going through the emotions. You're changing your physical state, which changes your mental state. And how beautiful is that? So this is not just something, oh, I'm just talking to myself. This is actually you taking control you taking action in order to change your state and therefore your mindset.
0: Yeah, there's a book by Todd Herman, he talks about how uh, people can uh, become their alter ego. I think the book's called the alter ego effect. Uh Uh, Beyonce uses it, Uh, she becomes uh, an alter ego on stage, she becomes all confident and whatnot. And he Todd Herman teaches this in his book. There's also Uh a documentary called You Are What You Act by Al Nuremberg, he's a Canadian. And he says that it's really, that was a really interesting documentary. He says a lot of uh, top TV stars, movie stars, have actually done real life dramatic rescues. Like Tom Cruise has rescued someone, a lady being attacked, I think twice maybe even. And uh, Jamie Foxx, a car was burning outside his, his house one day, a man was trapped inside, he came to the rescue. The, the paramedic actually gave Jamie the scissors or whatever to cut something, the seatbelt or something to mm. get the guy out. And they interviewed him. They interviewed the person later and they said, why do you think they, he gave Jamie the scissors? He's the paramedic. Yeah. But they say these actors, they, they so, they're so used to in their training. And they say actors have known this for 100 years. They've, they've done all these exercises to, to get yeah. more confident, to be the lead. To be, you know, acting out action hero <laughs> movies, and not just sitting on the couch slouched, depressed about your life. It's they actually are used to acting these situations out. So it's a really interesting documentary. You are what you act, mm. and uh, yeah, I highly recommend watching it. And Todd Herman's book too.
1: I love that. I love that. I didn't make that that next step there. I didn't take that in my head. But of course, uh, it makes perfect sense now that you're saying it. And that's how beautiful. So here we are, the two of us. We have pre, prior to this interview, not not connected. We, we didn't know anything about each other. I knew your story. Uh, you didn't know me from Adam. So here you are. But here we are exploring, connecting, um, talking, talking honestly uh, to men about their feelings. <laughs> and, you know, we are breaking cliches. We are breaking taboos. What's coming out of it? Pure freaking magic. I like it, I like it a lot. So there you are, Uh, you know, uh, how much more can we be role models than actually by exactly what we are just doing, isn't
0: it? I've got a question for you, you're in New Zealand. You know how much uh, someone on welfare uh, gets in New Zealand, a single person? I'm guessing it's not
1: much? No, not much. I mean, it's it's we are we are quite dire here, and unfortunately, there's a a large homelessness problem coming. And yeah, well, I can't tell you the exact well, figures. It's it's peanuts. Um, let's put it like that.
0: I'm asking because uh, recently I learned about a lady, uh, Louise Goslin, in Quebec, in Canada. In 2002, she took the government to court, saying it is cruel and inhumane to give people below subsistence levels of welfare. Nine judges ruled. It was a heated debate. They ruled five to four that it was not their decision to make that decision. And that's how that case ended in
1: 2002.
0: A lawyer friend of mine said they had to study that case when he was in law school. It's now 2022 and things have changed here. We're talking about mental health so much more now that we weren't even beginning to talk about in 2002. The pandemic blew mental health wide out into the open. In Canada, people got $2,000 a month uh, who couldn't work. Welfare in Canada is about $560 a month. And uh, also there's a much more respect for people who, uh, who are underprivileged and whatnot. We have uh, with Indigenous in Canada. We have a Truth and Reconciliation Committee now. There's yep. a lot more yep. work, or yep. at least conversations, done yep. on that. Yep. In 2000, our Prime Minister issued a public apology to yeah. uh, Indigenous. That's the first time that was done. Yep. And I'm thinking, it, am I it, the words cruel and inhumane? How long? How much longer are all these quote-unquote developed countries like New Zealand, Canada, uh-huh. the States, and places in Europe? just keeping this, I mean, in Canada, $560 a month. It is that, she used the words cruel and inhumane. And we walked down the street thinking, well, this is just the way it is. This is is just the way it is. This is, homelessness is is just a part of our life. Just like slavery used to be a part of our life. When we'd walk past that, we knew our ancestors knew it wasn't right a lot of them, but there was nothing they could do because that's just the way it was. I'm thinking how many more years, how many people have died from homelessness? Mm. How many people have died from financial stress alone, mm. from taking their life? How many more people are we going to kill? Should there be a truth and reconciliation in Canada for homelessness or for people mm. with mental illness?
1: The question. Oh, how- no, no. 100% agreed with everything you're saying. The problem, of course, is, there, is only, there are only so many people who are bringing in the money. So where should all this money coming from? I mean we are a small nation here we have got 5 point something million um and there is only so much money the current government here is labor and has been through covid times has been spending money in i mean so much it's no longer funny um so the question is we can't continue like that um we can't i don't know I don't have an answer well, um
0: us, us. I'll throw out one more thing here. Uh, A real role model for me is Scott Harrison of Mm charitywater.org. He helps people get clean water in developing countries. And he's really been breaking waves, making waves in the whole social entrepreneur field. And he talks to a lot of billionaires to, to get money. And in one of his interviews in recent years, he said that there are billions or at least if not trillions of dollars, just tied up, just sitting there in funds and whatnot, not doing anything. And you can feel his, I feel his, his just frustration with, look, there's for him, his big thing is there's 700 million people in developing countries with, with, without water. They have, they have no clean water, 700 million. That's one out of 10 people on the planet. They're walking eight hours a day to get filthy water. That's killing them filled with all sorts of horrible things in the water. And he says, we can solve this, you go to anybody on the planet, you can get them water where they live, it's under the ground or falling from the sky, you can get to them if you just have a bit of money and some people to, the the the, the labor to get it up and running. He says, we can fund it if we could get the money, but there's billions or trillions just sitting there. And I'm thinking how much longer, I mean, if those are rainy day funds, do you think, well, we've been in a rainy day for a long time now, we should probably use this. <laughs>
1: Touché, touché. Um. And you're right, there is so much more that can be done. But what you're talking about here is not government-led and taxes-led, but actually through initiatives of people like this person you have just mentioned, or Paul Dunn from B1G1, who is a man who is going out there to to, to literally make this world a better place. And uh, I have just teamed up with him uh, in order to actually do my part and invite my guests to do their part um, in making this world a better place. These are private initiatives. These are people who believe that we can make this world a better place. And it's beautiful to align yourself with such people because the growth that you get from giving and from, from working together as a team is so beautiful. It's again, the art of connection in a difficult world. That will hopefully save this world. So, you're quite right there. It's hard to leave that up to governments. Um,
0: I think there'll be a tipping point, mm. and where things will just have to happen faster, sooner. The environment is really kicking that off. I mean, Mm. we've got a deadline of 2030 uh, for emissions, and the uh, it's it's. Mm. I mean, that's on everybody's mind. It's just in the background there. Mm. COVID took us off on a big distraction for a while, mm. but it's still sitting there. And I think there'll just be a, uh, a year at some point, sometime in the next so many years. And it'll be, people, the world will just say, look, we've got to do things now. We can't wait mm. any longer to, shame. to take
1: action. Exactly. It's
0: uh, I've been reading some books on eco-anxiety and I've got uh, some YouTube videos. I wrote an article on eco-anxiety and I feel a lot more hopeful. That's another topic, but I feel a lot more hopeful about just the state of the planet and that we can do this. Uh, n- it's not proven. No one, know- There's not one single person on the planet mm. who knows what's going to happen. But so many of us are apathetic and think it's just the end of the world. Mm. But there are other reasons why we should have hope. Mm. And uh, I just, there's, there's so many, I mean, Navy SEALs, Olympic athletes, they do visualization exercises. Mm. Olympic athletes do visualization exercises every day, like an hour a day or something for years. They picture themselves doing the perfect performance and getting mm. the gold medal around their neck. People, um, there's a book by Katherine Hayhoe called Saving Us. Uh, and she says that when she gives talks, she asks the audience, can you picture an apocalypse scenario for the earth? And people say, sure, yes, I can picture that doomsday. She says, can you picture a positive scenario? And people kind of scratch their heads, "Ah, I don't know what that would look like. She says, we can't picture it. It's been shown in studies that no matter what the topic, not just the environment, if you uh, bombard people with negative stories about something with no call to action, they will become apathetic, young Mm -hmm. and old. And that's what's happening with the environment. We are being bombarded by negative stories with no call to action mm-hmm. at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So she says, ask yourself two questions. This is a positive or a negative story when you watch something about the environment or another mm-hmm. topic too. Mm-hmm. And is it positive or negative? And ask, is there a call to action? Some way I can help. And when you start mm-hmm. paying more attention to what you're consuming about environmental news, you can give yourself more hope. You can be. You can think, I, I do play a part. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't, I mean... One guy saw Catherine Hayhoe's TED talk and he came up to her later at some point and said, uh, because she says the biggest thing we can do about the environment is talk about it. Mm. That's the biggest thing, even beyond like putting up solar panels. She says, talk about it. A guy came up to her and said, you know what? I took your advice. I started having conversations. I wrote a list of the people I talked to. Would you like to see it? And she said, sure. He had a list of 10,000 people he talked to about the environment. And his town had gone on, he was in England somewhere, and his town had gone on to do good things for the environment. We all have a part to play. So many of us are stressed about it. There's a thing called pre-traumatic stress disorder now that uh, anxious about things that haven't even happened. Uh And this book by Catherine Hale and another one called Hope Matters by Ellen Kelsey. Uh, It's got a testimonial by Jane Goodall. Those two books I'm trying to tell people about because they've made me feel so much more hopeful. Uh, they say most people think the the, uh, the the saving the environment is like this big boulder that we have to roll up to the mm. top of the hill and then roll it downhill and do mm. its work. She says the boulder is actually on the hill, rolling down the hill already with hundreds of millions, if not billions of hands pushing it downhill. She says that it just needs to be rolling 10 times as fast. We've had people working on this for decades. Governments around the world are mm. committed to working on it. We, there's so much hope for us. It's, uh, Jane Goodall talks about the amazing resilience of nature, how quickly it can come back if you just leave it alone. There are government uh, uh, set, uh, what's the word, Uh, goals for uh, saving 50% of the planet's earths and 50% Mm. of the planet's forests or oceans by 2050 and 30% of each by 2030, 30 by 30 and 50 by 50. They're already working on this. They're cataloging Mm. how much is saved. Because they believe that 50% is what will be needed to be living in harmony with nature. When we have saved that much, we can still have our cities and whatnot. But if we save 50%, that should be enough for us to be sustainable forever. And uh, painting a picture of what this will look like, people Mm. can't picture it. But we've got all these solutions already. Uh, Picture your town with more solar panels, more wind farms, with electric Mm. vehicles. Think of all the things we have already, just having them implemented and sort of waiting to implement all this. We'll have all this infrastructure set up. Our towns and cities will look fairly similar, and that'll be it. We've done it, and we can say to ourselves, we can say to ourselves, we did it. Mm. And if we could do more visualization exercises, each of us for at least five minutes, saying, "We did it, we did it," mm. instead of going around saying, "Oh, there's probably no hope. Oh, mm. there's probably no hope. Don't want to do it. Scary." Mm. Instead, we need to be those Olympic athletes saying, "We're doing this. We're the ones in charge. Everybody has a voice." It, these, these environmental organizations are using the phrase all hands on deck now. Everyone plays a part. Doesn't matter if it's part. economy's Almost 99% of the people on the earth will play a small part. 1% will play a bigger part, but most of us will play a small part, and they all matter. And we all can't be perfect. There are so many decisions we can make about do we buy this bag of cookies with this kind of packaging in it, or this? There's so many decisions we have to make. We can't make them all right. Just make some. Just make more than you normally would. And so some of your decisions aren't good. Just just do something. Do play play a part. It doesn't have to be big, or just do just do something. And that I mean I know with eco anxiety, uh, people can get very anxious about that, yeah. and anxiety is no laughing matter. And I, I yeah. and I'm I'm not saying that'll cure you, yeah. but it could. It's made me feel more hopeful. And I I think everything helps in your mental health, no matter what thoughts there. I think they all count. So those two books have really helped me.
1: And please, come on, Matthew, we have just talked about, uh, I mean, two dozen books, two dozen sources that are beautiful. What we have also done is um, you again took action. You took action by searching that information. and whilst you say that you've got this anhedonia, or at least was it was not diagnosed this this kind of lack of enjoyment, you should have seen your passion here about changing the world this this kind of of yeah, you know you're you were getting really into it. And that is that is joy, man, this is joy. this is So basically, it means for those of us who are, struggling out there, sometimes there is no easy path. But there are things like like focusing a little bit on gratitude, five minutes a day, focusing maybe five minutes onto some action that you can take right now. Focus five minutes on those things where you have been procrastinating and just do one of them. Doesn't matter that one phone call that was in the too hard basket. Just do it and force yourself to do it. And you might find that 95% of your anxiety was actually about things that potentially could have happened. Oh my God. And guess what? It didn't happen. You just made that phone call. You dealt with the problem. It's gone. How beautiful is that? So it's taking action again and again and again. And it doesn't need to be huge, perfect action with a perfect plan. It's just put your right foot forward and start walking and you figure out the direction but it's you the getting it you,
0: yeah. you make it up as you go along you just start walking just start mm. walking you may not know exactly where you're headed or where you'll mm. end up but that's the adventure part of it i know it can be terrifying the unknown can be terrifying yeah. but uh you just got to keep walking and yeah. the the path you'll you'll make a path for yourself you'll hack through the bushes you'll go you'll get somewhere you you keep walking you always get somewhere
1: Beautiful, beautiful man, Matthew. Wow, what a discussion uh, it is! I didn't see that coming, uh but it just shows that that connecting with people, um when done right, with an open mind and seeking common ground, uh, it will get you so far. You've made me think a lot today, Matthew. For that, I'm incredibly grateful to you. Um, to uh, To just think about some of those things, and immediately half a dozen of action steps come into my mind. Where I think, huh, actually, um, there is more hope there than I gave it credit. Um, sometimes it's easy to say, ah, there's no hope. Yeah, there's no help. No, no. It's easy. You don't need to take action. So you know a bit of procrastination going on here. Um, but the moment you actually put your thinking cap on and ask the right question. What can I do? How do I go about it? Um, Then suddenly your brain comes up with answers. And it's very good in providing you answers. You just need to ask the right questions. And you have given us great examples here today, Matthew. Great examples from moving from maybe a pity party and a place of darkness by just continuous small steps by moving into the, the right direction from, from a victim to a survivor. In your case, from a victim of a mental health problem to a survivor sort of getting on with life to a thriver now who says, actually, you know, bugger off. I, I make this world a better place. I love the environment. I can do something about it. You know, see the joy coming over your face there, man. This is you. This is you leaving a legacy. And how beautiful that is. Now, well done, man. Matthew, thank you so much for coming onto my show. Please tell me if people want to know more about you, if they want to get in touch with you, maybe. How do they go about that?
0: Yeah, so my website is mindaid.ca, M-I-N-D-A-I-D.ca. My main focus is helping people with mental health in developing countries. And you can find Mm. out more about the work I do there. I'm on YouTube and TikTok, Facebook, yeah. Twitter, yeah. Instagram, LinkedIn. And uh, in the about section of my mindaid.ca site, there's a link to all my links. I've got some other stuff going on, like the yeah. eco-anxiety thing I mentioned. Yeah. And uh, yeah, please look me up. I'm, I'm the For the Mental Health in Developing Countries part, the website, uh, there's nonprofits that you can donate to to help people mm. with depression in Africa, say, or other mental illness mm. in, in developing countries. And uh there's some big names behind that. Robin Williams' son Zach Williams is helping promote uh hashtag break the chains because some people are actually kept in chains with mental illness. They're tied to a tree, tied to a bed. And uh, but anyway, there's lots of stats on that and ways you can help on my on my mind aid website. It's uh I would love to get the word out more about that. So if anyone wants to go check that out, that be would mean the world to me, but it it would mean way more to someone who's in extreme poverty maybe in a war-torn country and with Mm. mental illness as well that's untreated so Uh, you you could help them for like three dollars a month
1: guys look down there into the description of the youtube video and of the podcast because all of the links of Matthew are in there Matthew thank you so much for going out there and trying to make this world a better place um I'll do the same and if we just start that that happening in a few of our, our viewers and listeners wow maybe we can just start a little revolution here what do you think that would be amazing <laughs> <laughs> excellent mm-hmm. matthew thank you so much it was an honor to have you and you guys out there live with passion and look after yourself bye
0: i never give up i never give up i never give up turn around